0: Psychedelic science is exploding, and we talk to people at the forefront. So cut through the noise, converse with the vanguard, this is Mind Manifest. Hi there, and welcome along to the Mind Manifest podcast. I'm your host Niall Campbell. Today I was joined by an old friend, Dr. Sebastian Knudsen. Dr. Knudsen has worked for the Royal Flying Doctors, is both a fellow of the Royal College of Anaesthetists in the UK and College of Intensive Care Medicine of Australia and New Zealand and has worked in some of the biggest critical care facilities in Australasia and the UK. Seb is an intensive care consultant but has additional specialised skill sets in palliative care and echocardiography and in a similar sense to former guest Dr. Jessica Zitter therefore straddles the world of the nuts and bolts that are essential for the practice of optimal intensive care medicine and the more holistic sensibility required for optimal palliative care treatment. And just to be tedious about the reason why I want to cover end-of-life care from a physician's perspective, it's just so that we can give context for what scientifically ratified psychedelic treatments are very likely going to superimpose onto. I will be moving on from talking about this area of of end-of-life care for the next episodes and back into discussions of psychedelic science more squarely. But for the context of this discussion about why psilocybin is being heavily and seriously researched for applied use in such fields, there is an associated blogcast. Just go to the blog section of mindmanifestpodcast.com where you can either read or listen to it, whichever you prefer. Things will make a lot more sense if you do. I'm joined today by uh, Dr. Sebastian Knudsen who's a good friend of mine. I've never known how to pronounce your second name correctly. How do you,
1: how do you pronounce <laughs> it? That's about right, yeah. Knussen. but yeah, you're close enough. Sorry. Can, can you say that again? Knussen. Knussen. okay.
0: Well, what I'll do now is just try a whole series of variants that aren't exactly correct for the rest of our lives because I know that <laughs> bothers you. So I, I do know how, how to pronounce it, but I'm going to make every effort to pronounce it just, just wrong enough to bother you. <laughs> So, um, Seb, seriously, thanks for uh, joining me um, today and we have chatted obviously offline and just us in contact with each other um, and we decided that it would be really important to zone in on uh, a bit more of a broad sweep of palliative care. But my goal in doing this is to get a few physicians' perspectives because I believe that physicians are the experts on disease and therefore should ostensibly be in, be in some degree in charge of the dying process but in collaboration with the patients and their families who are experts on the person so that was sort of the the the, the foundation that we thought we should have a discussion about this it's really nuts and bolts and woo-woo uh, and how you best combine those because end of life is an area where whether you like it or not those two things sort of uh, run, run into each other. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Yeah. Um, so maybe just give a bit of a background into your career pathway as a doctor and, and how you have encountered end of life care.
1: Yeah. So I guess my, um, overall training has been in intensive care. Um, And uh, my interest specifically in in, in palliative care was during a specific uh, six months of just palliative care training as part of the intensive care training um, with the College of uh, Intensive Care in Australia and New Zealand. So I guess um, my exposure to palliative care is... um, part of my day job anyway as as with other intensive care um specialists but also I suppose a little bit more than uh, average just because of that specific period in in, in palliative care
0: mm-hmm. so you have experience in <clears throat> at the cold face of palliative care but you are an, uh, broadly speaking an ICU physician would that be a correct characterization
1: yeah, absolutely, and I think um, uh, intensive care people or intensive care specialists certainly feel that they that palliative care is part of our bread and butter. Um, we see dying patients a lot, um, and uh, yeah, so I think. Um, there is a good level of knowledge of palliative care amongst intensive care physicians. And um, there's just a few of us that have decided, I guess, to go that extra mile. And um, uh, I did the diploma in palliative care medicine through the uh, Australian physicians um, uh, college, uh, just to sort of add to my uh, experience, if you like, uh, and qualifications in the field, because I felt that it was something that we see a lot um, and, yeah, I guess I just wanted to know a bit more about it, and I guess just be better at it.
0: Hmm. So you, that exposure to palliative care, uh, made you realise that in order, to, would it be right to say, you, in order to be the best ICU physician that you can, you felt you needed more tra- more augmentative training in palliative care.
1: Yes, yeah, ab- um, absolutely, and I and um, I have to say the the real. Uh, The extra training, I think, was particularly good for uh, things like um, uh, communication um, with families. And and I guess seeing um, on the wards, seeing the good side of communication, seeing how people who are trained, seeing how well uh, they can communicate. Um, But unfortunately, uh, it was also an opportunity to see how badly uh, it can be done um in terms of uh, it exposed me to um, conversations between doctors and families that weren't ideal. Um, and I guess that worried me. Um, and I think it it worries me now in that I, I, I think that we one of the problems with palliative care is, uh, is that I think that it's incredibly hard to do well, but when it is done well, it's usually done by senior people who are very well trained. Um, But obviously having the resources to only have senior people that are well trained and and good at what they do, delivering palliative care is very hard. Inevitably, people have to learn. Um, There will be junior staff having some of these conversations. And I think that the impact of having these conversations poorly is huge. in terms of misunderstandings, in terms of miscommunication, in terms of putting up barriers to effective communication. If you have that first episode happens uh, with a junior member staff, perhaps who's rushed, um, who perhaps doesn't understand all of the intricacies and complications, then you can lose a lot of trust uh, early on.
0: So the potential starting block of poor communication by a junior physician who hasn't been appropriately trained can set the trajectory deleteriously for the whole course of treatment by treatment from that point to the
1: end of life? Absolutely, yeah um, and I think we see that a lot in intensive care as well when we have um, patients and their families who've been communicated to well, who know their disease process, know the options, have been listened to um, and and uh, and have had a chance to express their opinions as well as have had you know the 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 medical uh, aspects of their treatment explained to them. We find that you know frequently that's a good relationship that carries on, whereas the opposite is also true, and that it's almost a you know a vicious cycle once you've developed a, or once there is a poor relationship going. Uh, it can be incredibly hard to reverse that sort of downward spiral, if you like, in terms of if you've lost that trust, if you haven't set up good communication, if you've got beliefs or or opinions that um, haven't been addressed or heard, uh, then the amount of work that it takes to get families back on board and patients back on board uh, is huge. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, that's something that we see in intensive care a lot.
0: Maybe just to um, to give people a, a proper scope for it, I'd be lying if I said I completely understood what it looks like from a patient perspective in terms of the difference between ICU and say a palliative care ward or, or, or a hospice. Could you mm-hmm. maybe just delineate those two areas as experienced typically by a, a client, or patient, and then we can talk about what it looks like those, these communication pathways you're talking about, I just don't really have a full context for, you know, is this a ward sister talking to a patient at the bedside? Is it a, is it a consultation with the physician, you know, in, in a meeting room? Uh, I'm just curious if you could delineate yeah. what a palliative care ward looks like different to an ICU ward and, and
1: uh, how, how people move between the two, if at all. So I guess the, um, the big difference in intensive care is that, um, uh, Towards the end of life, there are a few things, there, there's a few, um, I guess, machines that we can put patients on uh, to prolong their life. Um, and the obvious one is a ventilator. So um, the big difference between a lot of ICU patients and patients on the ward is that they might be uh, on a ventilator and therefore unable to communicate, whether that's because they're in a coma or just unable to speak. Um and uh, so, what we tend to do in intensive care, and there's obviously exceptions, but the the what we tend to do in intensive care is talk to families more, um, because uh, typically our patients themselves are unable to communicate. They might be hooked up to um, ventilators, kidney machines. Uh, they might be on a whole bunch of uh, drugs, um, painkillers, um, and drugs that keep them asleep, so they're unable uh, to communicate normally. Um, So I guess in in terms of the ICU setting, what we tend to find is that we have a patient who uh, has a disease that we've tried to reverse the disease process by bringing them to intensive care and starting um, these organ support systems like dialysis or like ventilators. And then that's not been successful. And then we then move towards a more palliative approach to their care. So we've tried to cure them, I guess. Um, and then we, if that doesn't look like it's working, we then move towards a palliative, um, approach. Um, whereas I guess on a palliative care ward, um, you will typically, uh, have patients who are not having, uh, I, I, w- w- the, typically they'll be more awake, more able to be communicated to than intensive care. Um, and, um, and yeah, so it's just, that would be on a, on a sort of a normal hospital ward. So when you have a palliative care hospital service, they will typically see patients on normal hospital wards. Um, and they may also have patients in hospice, which they then go and see. Um, but that's obviously, to, but the, the difference, I guess, from an ICU point of view is that we have patients in ICU um, attached to machines, very medicalized. Um, and uh, yeah, and typically unable to, typically finding it more difficult than normal to communicate.
0: So, Seb, what maybe this is too broad a question, but what sort of ratio are we talking about of people who come onto your ICU ward that are ostensibly cured from that episode of of acute illness versus its transition to a palliative paradigm? You know, is it? And many people that are on any ward at any given time in an
1: ICU are going to end up in a palliative paradigm. So it's a difficult question because um, it always it always depends on what they come in with, um, and I, I think. But in, in, in general, you look at about a survival rate, um, uh, so about... It's it's very very hard because it depends on where a unit is, what specialties they do. But roughly speaking, you're talking about one in five, one in six patients typically die in ICU, roughly. Um, and that, but, but yeah, there's there's a large amount of variance in that. But I, I guess as a, as a broad figure, that's what you tend to be looking at.
0: I mean, before we even get to the patients, that must take its toll on staff in ICU, or just one in five patients that they're seeing day to day. And developing this doctor-patient relationship with our visit you know nursery re- patient relationship are going to die how, how does how does that take its toll on staff
1: yeah so it's that's a good question um and I think we we underestimate it um, there is now a thankfully there is a more of a push now in self-care um, uh, for staff uh, and that involves things like communicating with your fellow colleagues, asking people, are you okay? Um, And being more uh, vigilant for staff, uh, colleagues that aren't coping. Um, There's a big push for, uh, for example, in the intensive care unit that I work in, we have a a wellness week now where we uh, try and encourage good working relationships so that people do have... Uh, support networks out there, and, and and also understand that we do prioritize uh, the health of staff, the mental health of staff. Um, so yeah, that that's I think that's a good thing that's that's changing. Um, so, uh, but yeah, you're right. It is it it, it can be hard. Uh, I think the old uh, sort of the old um, way of looking at would be, well, that's just our job. That's what we do. We uh, that's what we chose, and and if you don't like it, well, you probably should choose a different job. Um, and I think that's that. Hopefully, that attitude is becoming less and less because people realise that it is hard to to see people die, and um, there are some deaths that certainly are worse than others. But still, it's normal to have a bad reaction to these things, and we should be more open and communicating about that. Well, one
0: one thing, if if you allow me, one thing that I can detect. In the profession, and you're in it, so you can tell me if this, this speculation is is anywhere close to home. When you hear physicians talk about wellness weeks and how we two big areas coping with the coping with death and coping with lack of sleep, whilst there are all these initiatives that go through, I still detect a bit of an internal eye roll in the profession because there's maybe some some culture some sentiment that you have to be okay with these things there has to be some sort of filtration process to get the best physicians you know so if we make it too easy for people to cope with death then we're, we're not having that weeding out towards those senior professions that you talk about the people who are made out of nails I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate with myself of course but
1: is yeah, the profession like totally on
0: board? Is the profession totally on board with this more touchy-feely approach to more holistic approach to to performance and wellness within the profession itself?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess um... – I guess maybe, uh, I mean, hopefully they are. Um, I, I think that's, I think it's definitely a good thing and certainly in conferences now, and um, there's a lot more talk about looking after yourself, you know, sleep is prioritized we um, uh, hopefully we, we're able to look after junior members of staff more. Um, we're able to appreciate the sacrifices they make in terms of shift work. Um, and there's a lot more support there. Uh, I have to say, I think you're probably right that there is still a large number of people um, that feel that in order to be a good doctor or a nurse, there is a certain amount of self-sacrifice and there is a certain amount of taking on board patients' problems. There's a certain amount of suffering that you have to go through in terms of being tired, being having people be angry at you, um, having sadness um, and almost feeling uh i don't really want to use the word martyr but but certainly i think there's a there's a large number of people that work in palliative care and and, and healthcare in general that that feel that what they're doing is a um that their job is a vocation and it's not all going to be uh uh chocolates and roses and it, it is going to be you know um it's going to be hard sometimes uh i think there's probably a balance there And I'd like to think that we are moving toward more towards the balance being that we look after ourselves more. Um, But yeah, there is probably some eye rolling that goes on. Um, But that that will be a culture thing. And I think I think we have we have room to move. I'd like to see us move more towards a self caring approach. But we're never going to be fully there will be some, you know, self-sacrifice and there will be some times where you feel like you just have to take a little bit of a hit for the team and, and stuff. Um, So yeah, and I think with culture changes, that takes time.
0: So to move more towards palliative care, obviously this podcast's interest is on the science of psychedelics. And I wanted to speak to you and a few other physicians, not, not from an expert in, the compounds behind psychedelia but more to get a broader scope of the areas where they're starting to show promise so to give a short shorthand of, of the areas where I think psychedelics are going to overlap with palliative care would be cannabinoids are, have shown and are showing good ability to ameliorate and attenuate the effects of um, end-of-life cancer cachexia especially you know. Uh, neuropathy, uh, anti-emetic functions, um, anxiety, appetite, stimulation, things like that. And another area that the more classical psychedelics like psilocybin, which are in testing scientific, you know, being clinically researched right now in Australia and, and other parts of the world is in the massive amelioration of end of life anxiety and end of life depression, clinically significant, not, you know, existential concern, but that is impacted as well. But clinically significant degrees shifts in a positive way in terms of end of life anxiety and end of life depression. In your medical experience, how have you seen people who are approaching death with depression and anxiety? How does that manifest in your clinical
1: experience? Hmm. Uh, So it manifests in many different ways. Um, and I think some of them can be very distressing. Um, there is, uh, I've seen it on hospital wards and in intensive cares where, um, depression worries about the end of the um, end of life can be, uh, confronting for the patient. Um, and also for the staff looking after them. Um, I guess one of the things about death is is its inevitability. And so when someone is almost fighting that inevitability, it can be really hard to see because it's something that we can't really do much about. Um, there are uh, some medications that we have at our disposal, but I think a lot of them are uh, inadequate. Um, I'd like to think that a lot of the time the best thing the best sort of weapon that we have, uh, is, um, a chair and some time. Um, and I think sitting down with, uh, some patients and talking is really all that we can do some of the times. Um, so in terms of whether there would be any medications that we could give, um, I think that there certainly, there would be lots of people in my position that would be very open uh, and would be would, would really like there to be some medications that we can give to fix that particular problem because we don't really have many medications at the moment for that. You know, typically antidepressants um, take a while to work uh, and mm-hmm. sometimes you don't have that time when this, yeah. when those symptoms happen. Um, mm-hmm. And whilst we can, you know, typically what we do is we, we talk to patients and we make sure that there's there's nothing that is reversible, things like pain, um, because uh, that can be treated. But yeah, in, in terms of it can be very difficult when you see patients that have this, uh, have had those symptoms towards the end of life, because there aren't many drugs that we can give.
0: Hmm. So I wanted to just highlight the fact that as a, there's maybe what I see as this sort of false dichotomy or schism between people who are on the more oh everything's medicalized and doctors don't understand (laughs) if if an area of research could increase your toolkit to deal with these things any palliative physician regardless what their uh feelings are about psychedelics they're going to want more tools in the toolkit it doesn't sound like you guys are going oh we're absolutely fine for pain uh, modulation and dealing with psychological distress we, we're, we've got more than enough tools in our toolkit would that be fair to say that you guys aren't exactly it's not an embarrassment of riches of effective tools uh
1: no and i think you know one of the things that that drives uh all specialties whether that's palliative care or um or intensive care or pretty much any specialty that you care to name is is evidence and i think mm-hmm. um that's what we want and um uh there's been plenty of times in the history of medicine where we have thought that we are doing the right thing and evidence has come along to completely change our minds. Um, so I think in terms of a, of, of, of a specialty or, or of a, just an in- industry, if you like, um, I know that there's plenty of people that we, we are trying to do the right thing. We think we have good tools. We, we like to use the tools as best as we can. But if there was evidence that something else was out there that could be shown to be better, um, Mm -hmm. then absolutely there would be very little resistance to that, um, I think. Um, I think if someone comes along and says there is something new, this is how it works, and this is a trial that shows it works, then um, there's not much uh, space Uh, in our practice for things like uh, pride uh, or uh, or uh, or or having opinions against evidence you know evidence comes along and we change our minds frequently.
0: Sure yeah you have to um, that's um, the hallmark of being empirical is to uh, there seems to be sometimes in areas you go into and it's unscientific if it's like I've already made my conclusions don't don't bother me with the facts you know, yeah. <laughs> knowing that this is always going to change. So I wanted to bookmark a couple of things you mentioned, a sort of inadequacy in the tools that the, the, let's say the multidisciplinary team dealing with end of life care would an, an inadequacy in the tools that they would use to quickly treat what sounded like mood disorders, anxiety disorders, because the SSRIs, even if they're working well will take several weeks to really calibrate and start to work properly and two to three weeks in the life of an average person who goes to see a psychologist or psychiatrist is not a great amount of time but two to three weeks can be an eternity in a palliative ward I would say so would that be somewhere where you guys would be interested in seeing drugs come online where you can improve mood in days not weeks
1: um absolutely um and you you know you're very right I, i'm sure that there are uh, uh gps and psychologists and people that see people uh with um a life expectancy of uh months uh weeks and months um and in the in those settings that will be very different from what i see um what i see sometimes is life expectancies of hours to days and in that mm-hmm. uh in that form then yeah uh, antidepressants don't really hold much scope um mm-hmm. so if there was any medications that could come along and and uh relieve suffering at the end of life then absolutely that would be something that i'd be incredibly interested in uh in hearing about and and, and investigating um and in no way do i think that what we currently have is an embarrassment of riches um so, yeah, the, the, be, be, my mind would be very open to things like that.
0: Well, I think that's, I mean, I'll flag this, and I'll, I'll. it's more for myself, I'll put this in the show notes, but I think that it needs to be investigated much, much more thoroughly, but ketamine, um, you know, it's off-label use for suicidality and things like that, it's starting to show some promise in ED, accident emergency wards, because people come in to accident emergency wards with suicidal tendencies or they've made a, a suicide attempt, and again same problem you know in a different context but we don't you don't have weeks months to smooth stabilize mood and um, ketamine is used uh, I, th- I think I'm right in saying as an anesthetic but it's off-label use has shown some promise in the, the very quick treatment of mood disorders um, yeah, yeah I
1: think we we use ketamine a lot uh, in intensive care and in emergency departments um, you're right it's a it's a drug that commonly is used for pain um and anesthesia um but just like everything else if there was evidence to show mm-hmm. that uh its use was good for i mean to be honest it's if there was any drug that, that 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 i had evidence for then i'd be more than happy to to change my mind about it um you know typically I, i've not seen ketamine used for mood disorders um it's been but uh, yeah, like anything else, if you showed me evidence that it could be used and it has been used and with good effect, then uh, I would change my mind. Mm, to be honest, I'm, I'm
0: agnostic about. It. I don't know enough about it myself, but I know that there's been some um, sort of anecdotal usage of it because it can be used in an off-label way. So um, that's definitely something I'll, I'll I'll I'm bookmarking that for myself to look into down down the track. Um, to move on to a different area which we've talked about as well, away from the more psychological suffering, which is obviously, um, right up there in the palliative context, an area which I would say would transcend both traverse both your fields of palliative care and ICU would be the management of pain. Is that your number one away from attempting to cure? Is that the number one thing that you guys are focused on or how, how does yeah, it 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 pretty, it's pretty into your
1: role? I mean, I, I guess it's, um, uh, it's the number one, it is probably the number one thing that patients report. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's something that we do commonly. Um, and, uh, there's a few, a few therapeutic options that we have, but in terms of, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a common symptom at the end of life is pain. And it's a a large part of what we do in palliative care, intensive care. Yeah.
0: And how, let's say I'm up at, coming into the ICU and have extraordinary amounts of pain that you guys are managing and I know it's every case is absolutely different but could you give me some idea of the decision tree a broad overview of, of what the pain medications are how, how, what's what are your mainstays how, how is that looking because I think there's often a, a bit of a moral panic at times about opioid medication and it's hard to know the signal to noise ratio is, is skewed it's hard to know it'd be great to hear from a doctor what how opioids and other pain medications are actually used in an ICU context?
1: Yeah. So, uh, in intensive care, we are very lucky, um, because we, uh, have large numbers of nurses, um, and doctors, um, so we can monitor things. And, and because we can monitor things, people tend to be less nervous about giving drugs that need monitoring. Um, so in terms of what we use uh, for pain, um, We use opioids. Uh, We use large amounts uh, of opioids as first line medications for pain, because in our experience, uh, they work Um, and uh, patients like it when they are not in pain. Um, And there's a certain degree of uh, anxiolysis that occurs with um, opioid medications as well. So we we don't worry about, you know, um, there is a, a school of thought that using large amounts of opioids can lead to things like addiction. Um, that is a worry that some of our patients uh, express to us, but we're very happy to uh, to sort of knock that on the head. Um, people don't become addicted to opioids when used for palliative care purposes. Um, so yeah, I'm certainly very happy to use large doses of opioids. Um, sometimes we find that opioids don't work, um, and then there is a, a whole host of other medications that we that we can use um, in order to uh, to combat pain but yeah in answer to your question about do we use opioids uh, yes it is my practice to use opioids commonly um and um in doses uh basically i use the dose that works and sometimes that can be quite high um but um yeah we don't find problems with things like addiction and we're very quick to to you know talk to families talk to patients and and uh allay any of those concerns
0: and you said patients like it I'm thinking to unpack that. Does that mean consciously and also sort of almost metabolically like it? You know, is there too, you can be as technical as you want, but away from just, oh, I'm not in as much pain. Is there something, is managing pain, does that help you guys manage the metabolic system that is the human? It's more than managing pain.
1: Well, it's, it's more the fact that we find that um, opioids, uh, as well as treating pain, um, can also give a sense of euphoria. Um, that mm-hmm. not uh, a predictable thing. Um, some mm. patients experience that more than others. My personal feeling is that um, I've seen it happen enough times uh, to routinely use opioids for pain at the end of life because... There, I'm, I've seen enough patients uh, feel those effects uh, to warrant keeping giving opioids, if you see what I mean. Um, so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's not something that's uh, uniform. It's not something that happens to everyone. Um, but yeah, there's a, a degree of uh, euphoria that happens um, when you give uh, opioids. Um, and that's why I use them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
0: tell me more about what that looks like that euphoria
1: yeah um it, again it's very varied um so sometimes it can be uh a calmness uh, that it looks like from the end of the bed uh sometimes you can uh if someone is still communicating with you someone is still talking which you know, intensive care doesn't happen uh uh all the time but um you can certainly see a an increase in their mood um a relaxation um a euphoria these are all things that you see um, and again, I can't predict which of my patients will, uh, react like that. Um, mm. but, uh, when they do, it's certainly, you know, I feel like I've done um, a good thing if someone is dying, um, and they're in pain and I give them medication and they stop being in pain and they start being a lot happier, then that's my job done. Um, so, uh, yeah. And that's, a, that's the thing that happens with, with opioids, probably more than most of the drugs. And. Um, But if you don't mind, a bit of a a personal question away from,
0: um, clearly a very caring doctor away from wearing, um, outfits that that just don't match and really loud shirts that make me want to vomit. (laughs) What do you do? How do you do to decompress from what, what do you do to decompress when you've had, you know, people lose patience?
1: Uh, yeah. Um, uh not a lot (laughs) um i um my partner is also medical um i guess sometimes uh sometimes i talk to her um although rarely um i think um and this might sound like a flippant answer but it's not um the thing that i find more than anything is that i go and walk the dog um and usually in silence and that's pretty much all i do um that's just a i think things through in my head um i wonder whether i could have done things any differently um or anything that could have changed um but really just walking the dog in silence is my thing to to decompress um mm-hmm. uh it's interesting because i think certainly uh, it, in terms of what I would encourage for junior staff starting in a career intensive care, that's not it. <laughs> um, I would encourage much more uh, open communication, support networks, um, things to de-stress, uh, activities, physical exercise, looking after yourself for sleep um, and all that sort of stuff, uh, and avoiding things like uh, alcohol, nicotine, and, uh, et cetera. Um, but I guess, yeah, I've not actually thoughts about that for a little while until you asked that question but uh yeah what i do is i yeah um i walk the dog in the silence and, and and have some time to myself to think and yeah that's that's mm. been all right for me so far mm. i uh i think that
0: that's a nice thought because you live up and you're in darwin at the minute so you get where do you tend to where do you tend to get out about out and about in Darwin because I know we used to walk on the beach in Perth quite a bit when we both lived there.
1: Yeah. We, we, we've got some nice beaches here as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's great for the dog cause he gets to run around and stuff. And I just sort of sit there watching him run up and down and, and, and I'm alone with my thoughts. Um, and I think, uh, that, that, that seems to help me. Um, I don't, I don't really find much value in, uh, talking about these things, uh, uh, outwardly for, for myself but um but yeah so it's uh but it's interesting you ask that because i've not really thought about that for a long time <laughs> um about how i actually decompress but uh but yeah that, that's what i do a, a
0: difference a, a noticeable difference must be between the the two broad worlds of palliative care and, and, and intensive care it seems to be the communicability of the of the patient so Moving on now to when the decision is is made, that I'm sure it's a multi you know multi a team decision. Okay, this person is cure is not on the cards for this person. This person is in their end of life that epoch.
1: How what's the protocol for consulting with families? So what we do in intensive care is we have um, lots of family meetings. Uh, so that will usually involve, um, and the preference is to involve the patient themselves. Sometimes if the patient is unconscious, obviously that precludes that. But, um, what, what we do is we have, uh, family meetings with, uh, certainly the next of kin and then pretty much, uh, any other members of the family that want to be there. Um, and we sit down, typically it will be me, um, and, uh, the nurse looking after the patient. and we will sit down and um, and I guess the first thing we normally do in, in meetings is we, we listen and, and we ask them what they understand about what's going on. Um, and then the meeting can then take lots of different directions depending on what's wrong with the patient. Sometimes it's, uh, for example, young people um typically head traumas in young people, then the meetings can take the form of uh, a breaking bad news and then explaining um, what's going to happen next, i.e. the patient might die. Um, but other, other meetings, for example, might involve um, a patient who has had a chronic illness that they're coming to the end of. And obviously that makes a huge difference on what the families are expecting to hear. And... Um, so, um, but yeah, in terms of how we manage that situation of moving from a curative to a palliative approach, we, uh, yeah, we have, and sometimes it might be uh, several family meetings, four, five, six family meetings, where we'll sit down, take time, explain what's going on, um, and then, uh, yeah, and then we'll slowly move to um, stopping medications that we think have side effects that uh, aren't helping the patient. And then starting medications that, you know, that treat symptoms rather than aim to cure. Um, so, uh, and I think um, in uh, in the past we've sort of seen medicine and palliative medicine as as a dichotomy. So you we try to cure you, uh, and then when it doesn't work, we then stop all curative medications and then start palliative medications. I think we've realised that. There's a bit more of a continuum that goes along, and actually, uh, treating patients' symptoms is something that we should do uh, as well as curative. So, if you like, it's not just a either or. Um, there is a continuum, but certainly towards the very end of life, then it it would be usual to stop all medications. Um, you know, typically things like antibiotics um, that might cause you know some of the antibiotics that we use cause uh, problems with. uh uh, nausea vomiting or diarrhea um and at the end of life uh if the antibiotics aren't working then typically we'll stop them um and uh because they're not doing any good and in fact sometimes doing harm so um yeah and then we'll start medications that are more aimed at uh treating symptoms at that point
0: what has been your experience of reactions i'm sure everyone is different but have you noticed any
1: patterns reactions from family or patients you mean yeah from from the family wow yeah i am i guess that's one of the uh um parts of my job that um uh i find probably the most the most confronting is is being in a family meeting and um and telling patients families that their loved one um is going to die The reactions those are the things that keep you awake at night um in terms of the whether that's the you know the the mum of a young boy who's been you know punched in the head and is and is probably going to die or the child of a parent or the um yeah or a husband or a wife that uh that is suddenly coming to terms with the fact that they're their spouse is is going to die. I think the the raw emotion that you see in some of those family meetings is uh, a powerful um, and confronting and uh, challenging. And sometimes keeping your own emotions in check uh, is hard because you know you it can be uh, you know I found it really really hard sometimes to to not cry with the patient to not agree with the patient when they're angry, you know if they're, if, they're, if they're talking about how unfair the situation is or or how, uh, or how horrible or how difficult, you know sometimes it's, yeah, that can be hard. Um, but in terms of the rawness of the stuff that you see in family meetings, I, I don't think there's much that com- that compares to that or can prepare you for it. Um, it just it gets you in your gut sometimes when you see um when you see that um and i think uh having spoken to other colleagues about about those experiences i think uh sometimes you reflect on your own experiences in your own life uh, and probably the hardest ones to to keep your sort of your your emotions in check is when something happens that reminds you something that's happened in your own life uh and that can be that can be really hard, but I guess at the end of the day you're not there for yourself you're there for for someone else and and, and that's what you have to keep in mind um, but yeah those those experiences those that those memories, both you know visual auditory memories seeing people react at times like that is uh, yeah it's some of the most raw stuff that I've seen.
0: We've been obviously talking quite a bit about the fears when people move from being ostensibly well to being very sick and then obviously passing away there is a whole other dimension of end of life which I think is going to be more of a mainstream discussion and that is people baby boomers living with chronic illnesses which and there's no bright line between when it becomes just an illness that you're living with versus something which you're not really ever likely to recover from so i'm thinking of people with cancer which is never really in remission and they get sicker and sicker but they're still living they might still even be working uh so i don't know what your thoughts are on how we're going to ha- the society is going to have to have a a sort of updated discussion about what constitutes end of life i don't know if you have any thoughts from a be interesting to hear from a doctor's perspective what you classify as end of life
1: yeah so i think um what we do now in certainly in uh, in hospitals is that uh uh we like to have uh goals of care discussions with all of our patients and one of the um one of the questions that we tend to ask ourselves is would i be surprised if this patient were to die in the next 12 months. And if that is the case, uh, or a few other criteria are met, then we like to talk to our patients about their goals of care. And that can vary a lot between uh, different patients. And I guess that's you know, in answer to your question, that's, that's how we delineate people that are coming towards the end of their life. Um, um, and at that point, uh, you start to have conversations about what end of life means to each person. And there are some people who, you know, and and there can be two extremes, um, in terms of, uh, what patients goals of care can be commonly, um, people want to be free of pain um and don't want to be put onto any machines or have their heart restarted by electricity or have cpr um if it's not felt that they would return to a good quality of life after that um but in terms of what a good quality of life means to each individual person that is very hard uh very unpredictable um and can mean different things to different people um, we try and uh, have conversations about that and, and allow patients to express for themselves what, what it means. But, you know, there will be some people where um, having help, for example, living in a nursing home um, would be uh, a fate worse than death. Um, but then there are some people uh, for which just being uh, alive is enough Um uh, they might not be able to communicate with the outside world, but just being alive is enough for some people. And uh, as a medical uh, community, we uh, hopefully we respect those wishes. We ask what they are, and as much as possible, we try and respect those wishes. Um, but that's how we. That's how we approach it.
0: Hmm. I think that highlights quite well the paradigm that I think I'm speaking to, Doctor Zitter, Doctor Jessica Zitter, who's a palliative care expert. And she would say that the doctors are the experts on disease, but the patients are the experts on themselves. And it's almost like there needs to be a respect, a mutual respect. Uh, you know, what? The, what every, every doctor is an individual, every physician is, every healthcare professional is an individual. What might constitute a fate worse than death would be a perfectly reasonable set of circumstances for their patient. But that does not mean that just having cancer does not make you an oncologist, you know. So there almost seems to be this need of both the patients need to listen to the doctors and the doctors need to listen to the patients. I mean, I know that seems so banal, but I think it bears repeating that it's very culturally specific what constitutes a a a a, um, a satisfactory life. Yeah, and there'd be plenty, I think, and it has to take into consideration the, the, the patient's spirituality, cultural context. Uh, I know the part of the world that I'm from. There would probably be less of a what would constitute a life worth living would maybe not be so in countries where euthanasia was more more culturally acceptable. You know, so it, it really has to respect. The, I would imagine so for a doctor who's worked in lots of different regions. There's a regionality to this as as much as anything else.
1: Usually, um, there's uh, we find culture religion. Um, is, is is has a has a massive impact. Um, you know, commonly the, uh, I guess the extremes um tend to be. Uh, currently, there is a, uh, in the Middle East, uh, there are a few centres there that find that. Um, uh, and this is anecdotal stuff from. Uh, from colleagues of mine that have worked there that find end of life decision making very hard that they find that there is an economic driver uh this sort of feeling i'm paying for healthcare, so i'm going to get uh, all that i can get um and there's a huge reluctance to switch off machines uh, or to accept that, that a, a, a situation has become medically futile um whereas uh i'm lucky enough to work in a uh, uh well, not lucky enough but i i i work in a uh, in a healthcare system in, a, in in a country where um i find that there is a good relationship between um often a good relationship between patients and and, and doctors and in, in the fact that we communicate hopefully we communicate well um but we don't have this uh resistance um that can happen in in other cultures and religions it sometimes happens um, we've had cases very recently where I work where there's been um, an absolute reluctance to uh, uh, to uh, move towards end of life care, even in the face of all evidence. Um, but that's a, a rarity, and and, and hopefully we uh, we manage that with you know communication.
0: Seb, now to ask ask you personally, maybe you've never been asked this before. What what would constitute your best case scenario for your own end of life and maybe even more illuminating, what would, what would be something you would really wish to avoid? What sort of circumstance?
1: Yeah, I um, I guess before I answer that question, I'm, I used to work with an anaesthetist in Devon uh, and he always used to say that his end of life, he would like to be uh, shot uh, in the head By a jealous husband uh, as he lay in bed uh, with that gentleman's stripper wife. Um, And I, uh, I quite like that. <laughs> um, um, uh, the, the, the gentleman that, that told me this, the the in Devon, was quite an elderly man, and was not that was not the words I was expecting to hear out of his <laughs> out of his uh, out of his mind out of his mouth. Um, I don't know. I, I, I guess in terms of my my um, uh, ideal death would be one that was pain free um, and surrounded by my friends and family. Um, where I had enough time to say goodbye but not enough time to linger. Um, I would go from being completely healthy uh, to being dead uh, in a very short space of time. Um, And uh, I would have had enough time before my death happened to achieve all the things that realistically I could achieve. Um, I think that would be my ideal death. Um, my what things I would want to uh, avoid? I think a lonely death, uh, for me. Um, but then, uh, uh or a very quick death or a very long death uh, would also be wouldn't be great. Um, but uh, even as I'm saying that, and you're right, I haven't been asked that before. But uh, even as I'm saying that, I'm there are countless examples in my head that I'm that are just sort of flicking through my memory bank, um, of patients that have disagreed with me um, uh, colleagues and patients that have wanted very different deaths uh, to that. I think mainly of the, uh, the lonely deaths and um, there's plenty of people that I have seen that have wanted to die alone that have not wanted friends and family contacted. Um, so, uh, uh, and I guess in, in, in that circumstance, that's a, uh, a, a good example of how we should not use our own biases to, try and decide what our patients want and uh, wherever possible we should try and have conversations with patients and when when it's not possible we should try and um certainly encourage families to have that conversation before people come to hospital because certainly when people come to hospital and looked after by me in intensive care sometimes that's too late to ha- start to have these discussions and um i think most icu doctors would agree with me and that the future is to uh almost outsource end of life discussions to families in their homes, rather than doctor-patient relationships uh, in hospitals?
0: Well, I would go one step further and say, yes, they need to be outsourced to the, the, the circles of concern of around that particular person, you know, the interpersonal people, interpersonal connections, which are going to be part, the real part of their end of life. But I also think there's a temporal, temporal element to it. In that, and that's why I've decided to spend a few podcasts and blog posts talking about this because you should really build the fortress in peacetime. I find, I would imagine a lot of the discussions, a lot of discussions that you see happening in family dynamics, you're thinking, probably should have talked about that about a decade ago, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and another interesting point about your, your, bi- like your biases, I think everyone has biases. The person who thinks that they don't have biases when it comes to anything, does have them, but isn't able to mitigate them because they don't think they have them. So every doctor has a bias about what constitutes a good and a bad death. And it, yeah. I don't know, I just put a, put a pin in that and say, anyone who deals with the end of life should ask themselves that question. For me, and I've heard of other doctors say, I'm thinking of Peter Attia, the, the, the podcast host who's an MD. He rates his, probably one of his biggest fears of cognitive decline he'd be more afraid of that than physiological decline, i.e. he'd rather be in a wheelchair and not be able to move almost at all, but be fully functional, which was for some other people. Maybe he's not putting it that way, but the cognitive decline, the decade of cognitive decline that we're starting to see in neurodegenerative disorders can be Mm. brutal, even though the person's, you know, all their systems are online and they're walking about perfectly fine. You know, they don't look like they're near death, but their mind is not what it once was. Yeah, uh, that's yeah, another yeah. element I, i'm one i haven't even thought of that but how, how does that tend to play into palliative care because i imagine that's clustering more and more
1: yeah it's it's terrible and i think we find it's you know when people's uh, cognitive um functions decline uh, that can be incredibly distressing for families and um, probably more so uh, than the patients themselves um and uh um yeah. I mean, actually I have to say that reminds me of a, a of a patient that I saw in, uh, when I was actually working in, uh, without, I probably shouldn't say the hospital that I was working in, but, um, um, but, uh, actually came across a patient who um, had lost a significant amount of his abilities to, for, for, and uh, for long-term memory. Um, and I think his family found that, uh, very distressing. Um, however, uh, one of the things that about him was that he was a uh, Leicester City fan um, and up on his wall, I remember there was a big poster, one of these pull-out posters from a newspaper saying Leicester, C- Leicester City Premiership Champions up on the wall. And, and this guy uh, woke up every morning and looked at the wall and went, oh my God, did, did Leicester City win the Premiership? And his family were saying, Yes, 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 they did. And uh, I, I he, his face just lit up with the realisation that his boyhood team, uh, and he's, this, this is a guy who's very old, but his boyhood team had won the premiership. So actually, uh, he experienced daily uh, the kind of elation that probably most football fans only experience once in their life. Once so, in their lifetime. Uh, yeah, but I have to say that uh, uh, hopefully he would... Uh, he, he would not have thought that my humor at that situation was anything uh, other than um, uh, uh, out of uh, love and respect for him uh, but yeah, it, it was a humorous example to me um, so uh, that,
0: that, that that brings me on to something and I, I, first of all let me just say I love you that you go, oh well I don't want to mention a hospital and then you totally geolocate the story by mentioning the name of the team which is also the <laughs> name of <laughs> the city Yeah Yeah <laughs> <laughs> It's um, no, but I'm I'm being facetious because that's something that I knew we would sort of come on to was that from speaking to people, resuscitationists, ICU, doctors, palliative care physicians, uh, a bes- right beside in their sensibility, right next door to the most poignant care for human beings I've ever seen lies a gallows humor. And I don't and love to know what your thoughts are because Outside of that world, it could probably seem quite uh, tactless or heartless, but I feel like, coming from an Irish background, some of the most raucous conversations I've ever had have been at wakes, which is where mm-hmm. there's a dead person and the co- you, you know the, those two things are actually it reminds you that gallows humour and death are so so close together. I don't know what your thoughts are about the role of humour in End of Life because I, I don't think it's, it should be bereft of humour.
1: No, um, no, I think uh, it's, it's obviously difficult because uh, it needs to be done right and it's almost impossible to know, you know, it's impossible to know how some things are going to be taken by families. People have very different senses of humour. Some people find things very funny that other people would not so i think it's it's a real dangerous minefield uh, to use humor with families because you just never know how something's going to get taken um and in terms of your own uh what you know things that you you find amusing then yeah i think uh uh you know I, I'd, I'd like to think that as long as as long as humor is done with you know the patient's uh, dignity and respect in mind and uh you know that story that i told about lesser city you know i that was a uh, uh you know almost a warm feeling when i when i saw this guy and it was uh whilst i could understand from his family's point of view that him not remembering um you know things like their names can be incredibly stressful and and, and horrible and awful um this little one anecdote was, uh, you know, it was something that he probably enjoyed and, and, and to see, to see him do that, uh, hopefully was, uh, with the best of his intentions at heart. Um, and I think if you, if you are going to use humor, then, uh, or you are going to have humor, then, then having the patient's interests, the patient's dignity, um, and the patient's wishes, uh, all at the center of what you're doing, uh, then absolutely. I think humor can be, uh, it can be a release, um, for stress. Um, it can be certainly something, uh, it can be, it can, uh, identify the absurd, um, in what we do and, and, and how, uh, and how some of our efforts are just, uh, yeah. Um, woefully inadequate, uh, and how some of the systems that we've set up are absurd. And, uh, but yeah, so I think humor probably is something you can use for by yourself, um, to, uh, and, and with, and with colleagues, um, but yeah, there's a few caveats to that that uh, that, that I think are important.
0: Mm-hmm. But I think um, humorlessness is not a particularly good medicine. I don't know what it's what the what is the appropriate dosage, but I don't think zero is no. <laughs> is, is is optimal.
1: I, I I agree. Yeah.
0: Um. Listen, Seb, I'm I'm conscious of your um time here, and you've been very uh, gracious with it. And uh, thanks so much for um. Thanks so much for taking the time to, to chat in this more broad way. This is gonna be a good good base for for talking about the compounds which I'm interested in and and I really hope that the science comes back with stuff that can help people like you to, to do a difficult job better than the already excellent standards that you and people and your peers manage in very difficult situations. So um, from a personal note, thanks very much for choosing this career path because I think that it's, uh, it's a good intersection
1: of nuts and bolts and woo woo, and, and no better man for it. Well, n- no worries. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And and uh, yeah, I think, as I said, we certainly, is a, uh, I speak for the medical community here, I think, uh, when I say that. Do Well, we are always uh, very happy to, uh, to change our minds. Uh, uh, if we have uh, good evidence to do so. And, you know, some of the compounds that you've been talking about, I would, I would, we are all hoping to see them succeed um, for, because if they, if they do good and they can be shown to do good, then we are all on board.
0: So I really enjoyed that chat with Dr. Knudsen. If you would like us to cover other topics in more depth, just please get in touch via the contact page at mindmanifestpodcast.com. And don't forget to leave a five-star review at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. It really helps in these early phases. This episode and the associated blog post deep dive into psilocybin, and they were the direct response to listener requests. So if you do have anything you would like us to cover, please just get in contact and ask and you shall receive. Uh, couple of upcoming speaking engagements. I am speaking at Breaking Convention Conference in August at Greenwich University and I will also be presenting what really amounts to a sort of literature review at the ISDAM conference at the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons in Glasgow in August and I'll just be positing that MDMA might lend itself to the treatment of specific phobias in the future. We have quite a few confirmed guests who I will be speaking to in person at these conferences. So stay tuned for those episodes and really looking forward to this next few months. So all that's left to do is give a big thanks to Dr. Knudsen and hope to see you next time. Take care.